Lord, we are humbled to be in your presence, God. Father, the time of worship that we've had uh, already has changed us. Lord, changed me for sure, God, just to be refocused. So blessed by Sam's analogy, Lord, of that x-ray scanner looking at our hearts. And Lord, we, we pray that you would now, God, continue that work that only you can do, that your word, God, would open up and it would transform from the inside out like only you can do, the power of your word. Father, every time we gather in this room, I'm humbled by the fact that we open the doors. That's all we do, Lord. We just open the doors and you draw your people here. And Lord, it's not only here that you draw them, you're drawing them into worship centers all around the world. Amazing, God. Amazing the way you draw your people into your presence. Some can't even explain why they come, but you draw them. And Lord, we pray for the church, the local church around the world. We pray for the church that's meeting in harm's way, Lord. I think of churches that have gathered already today in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and places where they're putting their life literally on the line to claim you as Christ. Jesus, would you be with those brothers and sisters here this day as the globe spins and as the sun comes up in the, in the, in the east, Lord, furthering around to, I think, of North Korea and China in places where it is against the law to follow you, Jesus. Would you bless those churches? Would you bless them, Lord? And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters from here that are in Kenya right now. Thank you for bringing Pastor Shem home safely, Lord. And for the rest that will come home later this week, Lord, we pray for their safe travel. But Lord, in these remaining days that they have there, God, may they continue to just walk in the fullness of your spirit to do what you've called them to do. And maybe more than anything, Lord, that's just to be changed by being there. The encounters that you're giving them, Lord, rubbing shoulders, living with, eating with, fellowshipping with our Kenyan brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we're so excited for the partnership you've given us with Nairobi Chapel and this opportunity. And we pray that uh, you would change us as a church through it. We look forward to those people coming back and cross-pollinating us, Father, with a new vision, a new spirit of what you're doing abroad. We love you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Second... Timothy chapter 3. We'll, read, we'll go through this whole chapter here this morning as we're continuing through the New Testament, nearing the end now of our study through 2 Timothy. And I know we've, we've been here and then we'll do a series and then we'll come back to this and then we'll have a guest. But this is where we've been, is in 2 Timothy, moving through here. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul to his young protege, Timothy, says, But know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. Hello. (laughs) Wow. You know, just a quick reminder of where we are here, right, in this time. This is is the last letter that the Apostle Paul would write. 
He's writing, as I said, to his younger protege, Timothy, a pastor who would become a significant influence in the New Testament church, the first century church, following in the heels of of the churches that Paul planted on his missionary journeys. And at this point, Paul is in a Roman prison. Now listen, Paul was in Rome for, for for several periods of time. At sometimes he was under house arrest, under a Roman guard in a Roman house. This is different. This is at the very end of his life. This is under now the rule of of Nero, who was very much anti-Christian, persecuting the Christians to the extreme. And Paul here now is in a Roman jail. And he's writing this. This would be the very last letter that he would write, that we have record of, canonized in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And at the point of his writing here, these words that we're reading this morning, he could have been within days of his martyrdom, within the last days of his life. If you there in your Bible, you know, just look, look at chapter 4, look at verse 6 there. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew this. He knew that he was nearing the end, and tradition tells us that he would be executed, martyred by beheading. Some of the, some of the apostles crucified Paul, a Roman citizen. It was against the law to crucify him. He was beheaded sometime around 67 AD. Best we can tell, the same time that this letter was penned. And here in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have Paul's final words. Here in chapter 3, we have this very emphatic warning, followed by specific direction in how to avoid the so-called perilous times. Perilous, full of risk, full of danger, treacherous. Other translations, we're in the New King James here, but if maybe you have in front of you a different translation, it may use the word terrible times, difficult times, grievous times. Get the the picture? Perilous is a a powerful word, right? I I was thinking back in my life, I don't know, and I I served time in the military during during a peacetime of the Cold War era. I wasn't in combat, but I was on a warship in the middle of the ocean, um, a submarine that would sink and come back to the surface. But I can never, you know, I've been on hunting trips. I've done some outdoor types experiences. I've sought some adventure. But in 57 years of living, I can't ever say that I have been in peril or in perilous times. I think the only people that could ever say that perhaps are maybe some war veterans that may be in this room. Maybe some missionaries that served in threat of persecution and risk, they might say, yes, peril. We were in peril. I suffered from malaria. We were threatened by tribes that didn't like us. Yeah, I was in combat and didn't know if I would make it out. That is peril. Don't tell me, well, I'm a mountain climber and I was hanging on a mountain and I was... No, that's just taking risk. That's adventure-seeking, and I understand that. And I think the reason that a lot of us in the world tends to these adventure sports right now is because we've so neutered the Christian faith 
If we're living for Christ in the way that we should, there probably should be more peril in our life, to be honest with you. So we seek these kinds of adventures. We seek these kinds of risks. But listen, today, this morning, as we gather here, there's already been a church on the other side of the world that has gathered in peril. And this is not to lay a guilt trip on us. This is is not to say, well, what's wrong with me? No, we happen to be living in an experience of great peace, prosperity, and blessing in the church in the United States. That's not without a cause and a purpose, though. Because we are one body. If my brother and sister in Iran or Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq is threatened with imprisonment or torture or or, or, or martyrdom under the sword of ISIS, well then, guess what? The church at large is being persecuted. I need to feel that pain. And I need to be devoted to them in praying for them, in leveraging my resources to them and those that are ministering there. This is not us and them. This is one brotherhood. And Paul says here, in the last days. Are we in the last days? Yes. They began when Christ ascended into heaven, the resurrected body of Christ ushered in the last days. We are living in the last days now. Yes, we've been living in them for 2,000 years. Paul thought that the Lord's return was imminent. John thought it was imminent. Timothy thought it was imminent. Peter thought it was imminent. I think it's imminent. It's 2,000 years later, but I like being in that company. That's good company, amen? The last days and perilous times will come. I think it's important to understand this word peril a little bit. And I think, I think the meaning is best understood by looking at one of the only other places where this phraseology in the Greek is used in the New Testament. And that's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And I'll read the verse to you. You're familiar with this, right? This is, the sto- this is the chapter where Jesus has just performed miraculous healing in the region of the Galilee, and he's now transferring over to the other side of the Galilee, to the region of Gadara, right? So he, the, the people are pressing in on him. He really needs, he says, we need to go to the other side. The disciples didn't like that idea. Because to go to the other side meant that you were going as far from God as you could possibly go. Because in the region of Gadara was just a whole uh, conglomeration of tribes and people that had intermarried and they were all pagan worshipers. It was as far away from the Jehovah worshipers in Galilee as you could get, both in spirit and in practice. And on the way over, you know the story, the great storm on the sea. Jesus is asleep. The disciples think this is the end. They wake him up. How could you possibly let us die like this? How could you sleep through this? He stands up and says, be still. And the sea lays down. And then they're instantly over on the other side in Gadara. The disciples have just witnessed incredible healings, overcoming death on one side, overcoming nature in the middle. And when they arrive in Gadara, who are they confronted with? Satan himself, 
manifest the possession of two demon-possessed men. And here's what the scripture says. When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so, here's the word, extremely violent. Other translations might say exceedingly fierce, difficult, perilous, grievous. This is the same words used here for perilous times. They were exceedingly, extremely violent so that no one could get by them. It's the only other place that this terminology is used in the New Testament in the way it is. And I believe why Paul chose those same phrases and why it links back to that passage dealing with these demon-possessed men is because the root cause of the peril that we face in the end times has to do with demonic power that's working behind the scenes. So everything that Paul's going to describe here, behind it all, the influence of it all, is a spiritual warfare that's going on. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded, as as Paul said to the the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of the air, against darkness, spiritual darkness. A realm that, quite frankly, I don't understand. But I believe it. I see it. And I know that this morning in worship, we called upon the name of the God of the universe that sends that darkness fleeing. I know it. And as we read down through this chapter, you're going to see how clear that is. I hope I can make this clear to you. And you might be sitting there thinking, man, this guy, this preacher's got some pretty old-fashioned views. He needs to get up with the times. I'm telling you, this is truth, man. And if you don't believe it, you need to really prayerfully go back into Scripture and ask God. Don't ask me. Don't ask Pastor Bob. Ask God to reveal the truth to you through His Word. I'm telling you, there's a battle that's being fought the only hope we have is the power of God, His Spirit, bringing His Word to manifest in us in obedience. The only way we can confront it is in the realm of prayer. But I know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Listen to the words here. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power And here's the exhortation from Paul. The first thing we need to do in these perilous times is turn from the false. Number one, and from such people, Paul says, turn away. Paul's going to give three exhortations to Timothy here in these perilous times. Number one, turn away from the false. Number two, follow the truth. And Paul's going to present himself as an example of what that looks like. And number three, stand upon the word 
of God. Now here, I want to I develop this idea a little bit more about this evil power that's behind this. Let me remind you that of, of Satan's greatest tactic, right? His greatest tactic is counterfeiting. He's the great counterfeiter. He is the great imposter. So what that means is he likes to take every good gift of God, and he likes to copy it, and he likes to pervert it ever so slightly, and then send it back to us, sell it back to us as a counterfeit. They look similar, but really they're just cheap copies. They're void of truth, they're void of grace, they're void of goodness. And of the greatest thing that he wants to counterfeit and sell back to us is love. You see, because the greatest gift God has given us is his love, amen? The greatest gift he's given us is his love. And in right relationship, when we come to understand that love as manifest through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ then we reciprocate that love. We enter into a loving relationship with Jesus, with Christ, with our God, our Father. So He loves us, and then we reciprocate. We return our love to Him. You experienced that here this morning. You were drawn here. Your voices were lifted up in praise. Something happened in your heart as you gave back to Him in some small way this act of worship, an expression of your love to Him. Mysterious. Then, the next greatest gift that comes because of his love for us, what can we do? We can love one another. (laughs) It's beautiful. The Apostle Paul would write three letters to the church, three books in our Bible talking specifically about the love of the brother for one another. The love of the church. How will they know that we're Christians? By our love for each other. God loves us. We return that love to Him, and He enables us to love each other. And then from that balance, when that's all in harmony, then God gives us the ability to enjoy His creation. We get to walk in the fullness of what He's blessed us with in this physical world that He's created. He told us to have dominion over it, to enjoy it. It provides recreation for us as we go out into its wonders and take them in. We are able to take its natural resources, hopefully as good stewards. We haven't been that great with that over the years. I think we're getting better. But we take those natural resources. We can take ore from the earth and take ingenuity of intelligence that he's given us. And we can turn dirt and rocks into raw materials that produce goods that generate wealth. (laughs) And bring people into the modern age with convenience, giving them hopefully more time to worship and serve God. It's an amazing thing. But see, what happens and where the devil is behind all this, all that gets perverted and turned upside down. Because instead of loving God, understanding His love for us, loving each other, and loving the creation that He's allowed us to live in, look what it says. In in the end days, men will be what? Lovers of God? No. Lovers of themselves. Lovers of each other? No. Lovers of money, material things, goods, things that we think will provide for us joy and pleasure. And then lovers and and, and enjoyers of his 
creation for us? No, verse 4 says that we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The whole thing is turned upside down. Jesus summarized the law, right? He said to us, what's this? they said, what's the greatest law? Sum it all up. It's complicated, Jesus. Explain it to us. You know what he said. He said the, the, the summary of the law should be that you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then he said, let me sum up everything else. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Brotherly love. Sacrificial love. And oh, by the way, I'll lay my life down on a cross so you know what that looks like. <laughs> Verses 2 through 9 describe what happens when the law is just forsaken, when it's turned upside down, when the great imposter starts selling us lies and we start buying into them. Those last days will be when that happens. The peril, I believe why Paul uses that word peril, it's not so much because of the symptoms. Like, listen, these things have been around forever. The lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. Is it, is it accelerating? I believe it is. But I believe the peril that Paul is warning us about is the fact that there is this demonic force that's behind it. This is what we need to be concerned about. And this is what we need to take focus in countering through the power of prayer and through the obedience of his word. Turn away from them, Paul says in verse 5. For this sword are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, for singing, singling out women here, but because in its context, these were the most vulnerable. They, they weren't covered. They, they did not receive yet the fullness of the freedom that Christ came to give to all men, all races, all sexes. They were treated as property. And Paul says they're the most vulnerable because they've yet to have this covering that, I, that, that Christ came and died for. That, that hasn't manifested itself completely. That's what the gospel will do. But yet, even here, Satan, what has he done? Christ came to, to completely set women free, completely put them on equal footing with men. And what does Satan do? Through the manifestation of, of lusts and, and sexual promiscuity and pornography, he takes women, God's great creation, and he once again puts them back into a position of property and being demeaned. It's the enemy. It's a counterfeit. And Paul's saying there needs to be special attention. That there's a covering over those that are most vulnerable, I believe is what Paul's saying here. And then look in verse 8. He says, Now as Jannes and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. These, these evildoers. 
Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also, theirs being Jannies and Jambres. Now, we don't know who these guys were. They're not, you can't find them in the Bible. But it doesn't take much to put together that these most likely, talking about the time of Moses, these most likely were the, the sorcerers that Pharaoh called upon to do battle against Moses when he was demonstrating his power through the, what we call the ten plagues. And remember, as, remember that early on in that battle, the first thing Moses does is throw down his staff. It turns into a snake. Pharaoh calls for his sorcerers. Most likely that was Jannies and Jambres. And they throw down a stick and it becomes a snake. Moses takes some water from the Nile, pours it out. It turns into blood. Pharaoh calls his sorcerers. They mimic that trick through demonic power. And this goes back and forth for the first few rounds. This is a heavyweight fight. But there's no match for the God of the universe. There's no match. Because pretty soon, Jannies and Jambres tuck their tail between their legs and say, we're out. Tapping out. He wins. (laughs) He wins. And Paul is saying, just as they were defeated, so too Will the sources of evil that are stirring up perilous times be defeated? Verse 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. Paul says, listen, you need to turn away from the false and you need to follow what is true. Number two, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. What a great list. Paul says, Timothy, you've seen in me. And if you're looking for a mentor, here's your list. Seven things that Paul lists here. This should be who we follow. Someone with sound doctrine. Someone with character. Paul describes it as manner of life. Somebody with vision. Paul describes it as purpose. Faith. Long-suffering. Love and perseverance. And Paul goes on to say, listen, you saw these things in me and you saw how they were tested. Paul talks about the persecutions that he received in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. We can go back into the book of Acts and read each of those accounts. This is so cool. But Paul says, through that all, I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And then he says this. Here's the great promise of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Get your pens out. Write this down. You came to church just for this great promise. You ready? All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, aren't you glad you got up and came to church? Aren't you glad? This is truth. This is truth. And you might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I've suffered that. And I'm going to have to give you the promise that if you haven't, you will, if you choose to follow godly lives in Christ Jesus. Now listen, this too is a spectrum. And remember, we're a body of Christ. We already talked about around the other side of the world, they're suffering more than their share of persecution. And we need to endure that with them. Can't stress that enough. 
But this is, this is a spectrum from one end, and it, it, it all involves loss. Listen, for me, in my journey to, to live a godly life following Christ, the first thing that I lost was friendships. Friendships. Second thing that I lost was, was loss of rights. I worked for a boss that one, that one time persecuted me because of my faith. It wasn't overt. It wasn't, you know, something that you could make a legal case about, but I could see it in the way vacation requests were approved and submissions for special projects were handled, and I could just sense it, could see it, had others confirming it. And then as you move along the spectrum towards the other end, then you start losing things like freedoms. A couple years ago, I had the privilege of being in in the Netherlands ministering to a group of pastors, most of whom were from Iran. Half of them were former Muslims who had converted to Christianity, and many of them had been imprisoned in Iran because of their faith. Loss of freedoms. And then at the far end of the spectrum... On the other side is the loss of life. And Paul already has shown us that he is at that point. But this is going to happen. It could be as simple, and I've seen it in my ministry here, you know, everything from a, from a butcher who had a boss that wanted him to relabel the expiration dates on the meat, and the guy said, I'm not going to do that. And the boss said, well, you might be looking for a different place to work then. To a nurse who said, I can't perform that procedure because in my mind that's an abortion and I just can't do it. And again, a boss that said, well, then you may be needing to look for a different hospital to work in. And I don't know what it is for you. And if it is not, then maybe it is worth examining. How am I living, therefore, for Christ? But again, I go back to the body of Christ. We're in this together. Your blessing is a benefit for those that are in the midst of this persecution. And you can't take that lightly. You need to walk in that with a seriousness. So Paul moves on here then. And the last thing that he says is that once we've turned from the the false and we've come to the truth, we follow what's true then we need to stand upon the Word of God. Verse 15, And that from your childhood, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This this verse needs to be underlined in your Bible. Verse 16 and 17. Paul reminds Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. What a powerful verse. Let's break this down. Let's look at these four words that he says it's profitable for. Number one, doctrine. What is doctrine? Well, doctrine is what we need to believe. In other words, Scripture, when we read it obediently, it's going to tell us what we need to believe. 
It's going to teach us eternal, supernatural truths. Things like that God is the creator of this world that we live in. That He exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He came incarnate through the virgin birth of a woman to come to earth, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and lived a sinless life. That He was crucified for our sins. That He was resurrected in the body. That He promised the filling of His Holy Spirit for those that would follow Him. And that Holy Spirit has come to give teaching and revelation and, oh, by the way, he's coming back again. These are all, that's just, that's a very short list. But that's an important list. Number two, this verse tells us that the inspired word is profitable for reproof. Right? This is a, co- a coaching word, right? It's not a pleasant word. But any of us who've tried to get better at something needed somebody to tell us to, what we were doing wrong. Your golf swing stinks because of this. You're never going to jump any higher unless you do this. You're not going to swim any faster unless you try this. Right? Those are bad habits you've got to stop doing. So reproof is correction. It points out things like our tendency to be idolaters. Things that we need to stop worshiping. So it tells us what we need to stop doing, things that we're doing wrong, and then it, needs to, it, it corrects us. It tells us what we need to start doing right. Right, The guy that was coaching our golf swing that said, you're never going to hit the ball more than 200 yards unless you stop doing that, doesn't help us unless he follows it up by saying, and you need to start doing this. The Word of God does that for us. Teaches me about confession. Teaches me about prayer. Explains what worship is and gives me examples throughout both New and Old Testaments. Teaches me about the importance of assembling here with you with this thing we called worship and fellowship. And then lastly, it's profitable for instruction. This is what we need to become. Visionary. Stop these practices, start doing these practices, and in doing so, you will become this. Selfless. Brave. Loving. Long-suffering, renewed of the mind, walking uniquely in the gift that God has created me to walk in are those gifts. The Word of God provides all of this for us. I've taken you here many, many times when I talk about the importance of the Word of God in our lives. I'm going to take you there again. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Hebrews 4, verse 12. We'll end with this thought. For the Word of God... Now listen, you might think, well, yeah, this Word's inspired, it's profitable for all those things, but man, it's 2,000 years old. Is it relevant to me today? Can I testify to you that it is? That it is. Book of Hebrews says that it's living. It transcends time, in other words. It's powerful. Dunamos, dynamite. It, it's got, a, it's got a, a power of the creator of the universe, the one who was the word, it says in John 1. And in John 1, 14 says that word became flesh. 
the word that you're reading is the very essence of who Christ is and what he was meant to be for us. Living and powerful, and listen to what it does. Nobody else can do this for you. Nobody. Listen, counseling is important. I'm honored when somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, could you help me through this situation? Honored by that. I admire people that go and seek godly counsel. You need to do that. But if that counsel is not taking you to the Word of God, they're helpless. Because here's what the Word of God does for you. It penetrates down. Look at the language here. Like a two-edged sword. It's like a scalpel. And it goes down to the deepest part of who you are. And look what it does there. It discerns the intents of your heart. (laughs) What else can do that? I can't do that for you. No other human being can do that for you. But the one who created you through his word can do that for you. I don't even understand what goes on in my heart, you guys. I read it against the word of God and I'm like, that's what's going on in my heart. I'm prone to idolatry. (laughs) That's what's going on. I got my love all situated in the wrong direction or whatever it may be. Only the word of God can do that for you. As the worship team comes back up here this morning, I was reflecting as I, as I, you know, just honoring this word that we have in front of us. And I was thinking back to my time as a child, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years, somewhere, you know, in that period of time, one of my great childhood activities, one of the things that I love to do probably more than pretty much anything that you're going to think I'm pretty weird, is, and I would get with my friends, I used to love to dig holes. Not for the purpose of digging holes, mind you. I was looking for treasure. And my dad, I would drive my dad nuts. He'd say, Steve, you cannot dig a hole there. Actually, he would say, Stephen, you cannot dig a hole there. He said, listen, if your friends are going to get together and dig you can dig here. And he plotted off like a small like tomato patch size area in the lawn. And he'd say, you could dig here. And man, did we dig. We dug holes, you know, at, at seven years old that we would just about disappear down into. And the place that we lived must have been a farm at some point because and it, maybe this was a refuge dump. And maybe my dad knew that just to keep me. Or maybe he put stuff there. I don't know. But we would uncover amazing things. Anything from old bottles to skulls of, like, probably pets or something that was bare. I know it sounds gross, but listen, when you're seven years old, this is awesome. (laughs) This is amazing. Love to dig for treasure. When I was a teenager, I had an uncle that would take me all through the Rocky Mountain states. He He was a rock hound. He used to hunt fossils and precious stones and he would take me all through Utah and Colorado, Wyoming looking for looking for rocks. I had a friend of mine who's a, who's a scuba diver, a guy in this church that gave me a book. He said, "Steve, you're going to love this book. It's about these scuba divers off the coast of New Jersey who found this amazing treasure. They found a, a submarine, a, a, a German submarine from World War II. Germans didn't know it was there, and the Allies didn't know it was there. These guys found it off the coast of New Jersey. Spent six years trying to identify specifically what it was. 
Three guys lost their lives pursuing this exploration. And I thought to myself, man, if we had that same passion to open the Word of God, this rich gold mine, we're told that it's infinite, it's unfathomable what's contained in it. And if we open the Word of God prayerfully, with imagination, read it slowly, and listen, most importantly, read it obediently, it'll change your life. And it'll change the world that we live in. Let's stand. Stand.